Welcome to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward, and right here with me, well, figuratively speaking, my co-host and creator of the show, Tom Jokic. We are attached by a very, very long mic cable at this point. Christopher, I'm thrilled to tell you that we have another interview with Fleetwood Mac. Now, several months ago, we played separate interviews with Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham from the early 80s. We also, previous to that, played some Fleetwood Mac interview clips from when they were on tour, and there was some backstage stuff that was quite funny. This stuff is exceptional as well. So it's yet another Fleetwood Mac piece, and it's excellent. So we've got that coming up this week. Tell us what else we have this week, Tom. I do have to give a shout-out to the immense number of interviews that you did while you were at Much Music and how good so many of these interviews are and what a thrill it was Mm, to receive these clips from you and David Crosby from 1989 And boy, oh boy, you forget what a great interview subject David Crosby is. And thankfully, he's been clean and sober for a very long time because he left a trail of broken bottles and, dare I say, broken needles (laughs) uh, behind him and also broken dreams and some broken friendships. And we're going to talk at great length about that over the course of this week's show. Great song, Rhiannon, Stevie Nicks and Fleetwood Mac. Tom, as you mentioned, we've had Fleetwood Mac featured on Famous Lost Words before, and Stevie Nicks is a great interview subject. You always get the feeling that she's truly listening to the interviewer Mm. and that her responses are genuine and spontaneous, even if it's a subject that she's been asked about many, many times. And also, for me, as an audience member, you can sense her desire to engage with the audience after 40-plus years of being on big stages in giant rooms. She talks in this interview, by the way, about the challenges those gigs create. Right. Now, she also experienced failure early in her career when the Buckingham Knicks album didn't sell. But in one of those lovely twists of fate, when Fleetwood Mac were getting a tour of a studio in L.A. to consider recording there, the producer played a Buckingham Knicks song to show them what the room sounded like. Weeks later, Bob Welch quit Fleetwood Mac and they needed a guitarist. Fleetwood remembered Buckingham and offered him the gig. Mm. What did Lindsay say? Yes, but Stevie has to be part of the deal. Good call, Lindsay. Great call, Mick Fleetwood, for listening to him. And boy, oh boy, their lives would never be the same. And Stevie's impact on the group transcended anything that they ever expected. Tom, this interview from 1978 starts on an amusing note with Stevie talking about one of the signature pieces in her wardrobe. Do you want me to tell you something really, really neat that happened in Buffalo the very, very first time Fleetwood Mac when I was in it came to Buffalo? What? I, we were staying, I think, at the Holiday Inn, some Holiday Inn, um, uh, <laughs> and I, I walked out, which I do a lot, I do. They don't let me do it too much anymore, but I do when I can. I sneak out. And I walked down the street to this little antique store. Mm-hmm. And it just looked totally marvelous from the outside, so I just went, that's for me. And I went in, and um, that's where I bought my top hat. Oh, yeah? And I just bought it. I had no idea. I'd always wanted, I mean, I am the original Mad Hatter, and I'd always wanted a top hat, and it was just sitting in there. And I just said, well, you know, I'd like to buy this, and this lady sold it to me for some ridiculous amount of money, like $18, where she could have sold it for 200 because it was such a beautiful one. Dynamite. And so I bought it, and I started wearing it, and I have worn it ever since. That's great. And so that is where I got my, that was the beginning of my top hat. You wear that a lot on stage. Well, I wear it 
Always. Oh, wow. And that top hat became a mainstay in her costume for years. And you know who was a big influence on her look? Someone that she saw live a few times during his lifetime. Do you know who that was? Uh Uh-uh. Jimi Hendrix. Wow. I can see that. (laughs) Yeah. I loved his stage look. You know, it was just utterly unique. For sure. Um, She talks about the need to retain some humility when success does arrive. Yeah, particularly when they are given a trophy at award shows. For one award show, we flew from back east, back to Los Angeles, for one night on a little little plane, and then turned around and flew back. Because, I don't know, you know, you can get to a point where you're just such hot, you know, mm-hmm. that that you can't, you know, you can't bother to show up. And I always said to myself, and I just happen to be in a band of people that feel the same way, that when we start saying, oh, we can't be bothered to be at an award show, uh, or we can't be bothered to pick up uh, a Grammy or an Emmy or whatever all that, you know, different stuff is, then, then what are we, you know, what have we got to offer at that point? And so we just really appreciate everything that's happened to us a lot. It's very easy for all of us to remember when nothing was happening and when we, you know, doors were slamming in our face. Mm. And it just wasn't that long ago. And uh, so for me, it's, it's very gratifying. And I figure those people bought my beautiful house and my lovely little car and my stereo and <laughs> pay my veterinary bills. And, you know, they do a lot for me. And the least of all I can do for them is be there when somebody calls out our name, you know. I love people, you know, and I don't feel that I've changed a whole lot in this band. I mean, I've changed in in many ways that we all change because instead of being 27 or 28 or however old I was when I joined the Mac, I'm 30. So I'm older and I'm wiser and uh, I'm a little better musically and I know a lot more. But I also have learned that friends are real hard to come by and that uh, a lot of people like you for Fleetwood Mac and a lot of people like you for you and that you can... You know, you can you can live out a pretty normal life if you if you plan it and you're careful, or you can get really on a side where you hold yourself up in a castle. Right. And I don't intend to do that. And when I have to do that, that's when I'm out of this business. If you want to, uh, if you want to see somebody, even if you're recording all night and singing all day, and you have a you work at a market all in the afternoon and, and you have a shoe store job in the morning. If you want to see someone bad enough, you you make time, right? You're right. If you don't, you won't. So I have always felt that if I want to make time for anything, that I'll, I'll find the time. You know, if I have to get in my car and drive somewhere in the middle of the night and back in an hour, I'll do it. All right. That's my philosophy on, on just about everything that I do. Wow, there's so much in that clip. You can hear her gratitude for her career in there. I think she's sincere, too. At least I believe her. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Maybe she remembers that after the Buckingham Knicks album, she had to work as a maid, a dental assistant, and a waitress to pay the bills. Anyway, the really big shows are a real challenge for Stevie, as this next clip reveals. I don't like doing big concerts because I can't see very well. And I mean, I'm very, very nearsighted, and I... Because of that, I have a very well-developed sixth sense, which is I feel mm-hmm. heavily the audience. And I may not see them, but, but I know exactly what's happening because I just, I just feel it. But I, I like, my favorite is like, you know, 10, 12,000 people indoors 
at night mm-hmm. with lights and because to me that's 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 Hollywood that's glamorous that's really exciting much more exciting for me than a huge outdoor concert only because I can't you know if I'm if I'm holding out my hand to someone or smiling or reaching I know that they can't see me way back that far so I really have to try and compensate with what I'm singing and I do I, I overcompensate probably because I really it's important to me to reach you know because it was especially with my songs what I'm saying is very important to me and it's very important that they understand and if there's a million people there it's very hard to be that intimate but you know you'd have to play 10 days in every city right. and my voice wouldn't hold out I love how self-aware she is in this interview <laughs> I love the fact that she admits she can't see very far and I guess she just won't wear glasses that's very funny <laughs> She also talks about the singer's worst enemy, vocal strain. Yeah, because they were thinking of operating on her vocal cords. I'm trying to work around surgery. I don't want to have surgery. Mm-hmm. I don't want anybody taking a laser beam to my throat. Um, so I, I have a speech therapist on the road with me. And as you can hear right now, my voice, my allergies are real bad. Uh-oh. I really have to take care but it's okay. It seems that we've done three shows, and it's been really good. Because on that on that uh, cut, whenever I call you friend that you did with Kenny Loggins on his new album Night Watch, you sound so strong on that. Yeah. Stronger than I think you did on Rumors. Yeah, I, yeah. Well, and then we'd see between Rumors and that we'd had a tour that went for 90, 90 concerts. So I mean, I'm always getting stronger, and I'm, you know, if, like if I exercise and take care of myself, then it then it, it always shows in my voice. Mm-hmm. It becomes obvious to all of us that that we're not a whole lot different than athletes. So tonight when you play in Buffalo, are you going to do all our favorites? Oh, yeah. Great. Yeah, and one brand new one. Sisters of the Moon. Sisters of the Moon. Did you have a hand in writing that? I wrote it. Uh, I thought so. You, I don't know, what, if, it, if it's got to do with Moonlight and Night, Stevie Nicks is there, I get that feeling. It's mine. <laughs> but it's the band. They made it. I mean, I just sing it. I want to thank you for uh, taking time out of your schedule to, to call us and chat with us. Okay. Tom, we're going to wrap up this segment with a couple of bonus clips from Mick Fleetwood. It was fascinating to see the band go back to their earliest days for a couple of songs on this current tour, including the song Black Magic Woman, which I guarantee 99.9% of the audience thought was a Santana original. Mick talks about the constant changes that Fleetwood Mac have gone through. It depends on, uh, you know, I'm sure, sure you know, but I mean, for people, probably a lot of people now must obviously have uh, really got to know the band as it is now. Mm-hmm. And if for some reason they, they hear some old stuff or it must be a sort of radical change, but in actual fact, it was real gradual mm-hmm. that the change from, from the band you know, not playing 12-bar uh, blues, it, it went pretty quick in the, in the early days. Then Play On, really, is, is the album where the band ceased to be just locked into a, a particular type of music and just became uh, something that reflected the people and the, the writers mainly in the band, you know? Do you think that was a turning point album for you, Mick? Well, I, I think so, because I, I don't think the band just suddenly changed from being one thing and suddenly, you know, it was like six, seven years later. I think uh, if people like listen to the albums and that, they're all 
very different because they had you know different people in the band mm -hmm. and uh the band obviously sounds different now but as far as it's suddenly changing from a blues band in, into a band that had become tremendously successful we'd really gone through that sort of a drastic music change a long time ago you know? mm -hmm. Christopher, I know that we talked about this um, uh, several weeks ago, but tell us again some of your observations of the Fleetwood Mac tour. Well, I was amazed at how much um, they leaned on Neil Finn. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, let's face it, as you go back over their catalog, if you were to ask just your average, you know, garden variety Fleetwood Mac fan their favorite songs, there'd be a lot of Lindsey Buckingham tunes in there. And the only person who could sing them, really, was Neil Finn. I mean, I guess Stevie could have taken on one of them, or maybe Christine, but it wouldn't have made sense, I don't think. Right. And Neil held up his end marvelously. And there was a really nice camaraderie on stage. And when Mick introduced Neil, he made a point of letting people know who he was, where he was from, and then they did their version of uh, Don't Dream It's Over, which was lovely. And also they did a fantastic tribute to Tom Petty on the uh, video screen, I guess in response to the fact that his guitar player, Mike Campbell, was now in Fleetwood Mac. Mm -hmm. uh, and then they did a version of Free Falling that was just, just so lovely. And it was funny because it had only been... I guess two years ago that I'd I'd heard it um, performed at the Hollywood Bowl at one of Petty's last shows. Right. Over, overall, I, I mean, they just managed to keep the common touch. And, you know, Mick Fleetwood comes out and talks to the audience at one point. And, and you can tell this is a man who loves his work. Mm -hmm. Now, we've said that about more than one artist, but... I don't know. It it, it often is a, a rare commodity to not see artists just going through the motions, and they do not. Well, you know, I think part of the problem with um, the dismissal of Lindsey Buckingham last year was the fact that he didn't want to go out and tour, and they did. And you and I have had this discussion on a number of occasions where... Rock bands just want to get out there and play. And I really do think that it's way more than about the money with these guys. I mean, that may be a very large factor, but I really do think they want to play. I think they enjoy it. I know there were times in past tours, I know for a fact, because I know someone who's actually a very close friend of Stevie Nicks, when a tour would end, she would literally say, I am never going to tour with that man again. And she was talking about Lindsay. Now, with you know, now right. we we need to be you know we need to tread lightly here because we both love Lindsay Buckingham very much. And of course, there was that recent health scare with him and his open heart surgery, and the fact that it may have uh, touched his vocal cords. He may not sing again. Hopefully, that will not be the case, and he will be back on stage sooner than we know it. So we we say this in full respect of Lindsay's talent. And I've met Lindsay personally, and he was fantastic. So it's not a shot at him personally, but I know that the feelings and the tensions between him and Stevie run very, very deep. And so it's just fascinating to hear all the different incarnations of Fleetwood Mac and their feelings for each other. But the fact is, those guys wanted to go out and tour, and Lindsay did not. We've got a little uh, postscript, a bow on this episode, Tom. Mick Fleetwood talks about something he knows very well, the cloistered life of the famous. We all feel pretty basic, really. I mean, we don't change. I think we're also aware, at least I am, and I think the band is, of not letting that happen. I mean, there, there are obvious things that do detach you, which are just, they just are necessary sometimes. I mean, it, it's not really, a, for instance, that possible for the whole, it's all right just for one or two of us or something, just traveling around, there's no big 
bodyguard trip, but if the whole band's on the road, things like that just have to be done in a certain way. Otherwise, you, know, you, you would spend all day, you know, signing autographs, which just isn't possible. No. You know, because you, you've got to get in the car and you've got to leave and you've got to go to a sound check. Uh, that's about the extent of it. I don't think we're terribly protected at all. Mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, I hope we do. You know, I have a, a healthy perspective on the what, whatever is involved from the music being really successful and not letting that tie, tie us down to some, you know, panic, or, oh, now we've got a formula, we've got to stay with it, or, mm. you know, and make an album a certain way. Uh, we'll never let that happen because then nothing will, that there aren't any particular plans, but the particular plans is definitely to, to stay as, as we are as far as attitude and not letting uh, things that could tend to and have done like with some other bands you know, here and there, they've, mm -hmm. they've sort of got locked into a trap. Right. Before they know it, they can't, they can't do something which is really a privilege for us to be able to do is, is to find that we can do all sorts of different things on an album, whatever that might be, without feeling, uh, oh my God, and they're not going to listen to us next time. Right. And I think, luckily, you know, as a band, people have sort of got to know us as at least being pretty varied in, in, in what we do. There you go. Mick Fleetwood, Stevie Nicks of Fleetwood Mac. Now, I don't know if you remember this story, Christopher, but Fleetwood Mac was a soap opera even before Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham joined. At one point, Mick's wife, so Mick Fleetwood's wife, Jenny, had an affair with guitarist Bob Weston. That's not Bob Welch, it's the other Bob. And he was a friend of Mick's, and he was also in the band. So there was such a huge blowout that everyone had to go back to England to cool off. But they still had a tour to finish, so their management sent out a substitute Fleetwood Mac, a fake Mac, to fill the remaining dates, and it caused such a huge uproar and scandal that it almost ruined the Fleetwood Mac name forever. And that was before Stevie and Lindsay even joined. That is just unthinkable. <laughs> Can you imagine somebody trying to pull that off today? Yeah, imagine a fake Maroon 5 going out and, go and thinking that nobody would notice. <laughs> but, hey, you never know. When a had green eyes Like yours, lady like yours. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward, and that is Guinevere by Crosby, Stills, and Nash, written by David Crosby, who Christopher interviewed in the late 80s. Tom, David Crosby is rock royalty. He's one of the true elder statesmen of popular music. Now, he's had a career that stretched from being a founding member of The Birds in 1964 to starting Crosby, Stills & Nash in 1968, right up to 2018's Here If You Listen. He's done a number of albums with Graham Nash and solo work as well. In 1988, he published his autobiography, Long Time Gone, appropriately titled, a harrowing account of his life as a musician and his time in jail. Now, I met him in 89 at the time of a renewed creative outburst. He had recorded a recent album with Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young called American Dream and subsequent to the book, had released a solo album called Yes, I Can. 
I found him very upbeat, gregarious, and wide open about everything. Now, given that his book had documented some precipitous ups and downs, many very public, I asked how he thought the American public treated their heroes. The American public, uh, yes, sometimes they'll set you up like a straw man just to knock you down, you know. But at the same time, they love an underdog. You know, it's a funny thing. When you're on top, uh, if they think you get too arrogant with it, they do kind of like to see you fall flat on your face. And they sometimes, and some of them, can be pretty cruel about it, you know. A lot of the press wrote me off as being dead, you know, and pretty harshly. But I frankly gave them the ammo. You know, I, I don't... I don't really have any too many hard feelings. You know, there were a couple of them that said stuff that that wasn't true. You know, spin did, but yeah. most of the most of them it was pretty fair. You know, but to the American public at the same time, if you're willing to try to put yourself here together, will come back for you and give you all the support and heart in the world. You know, and that's what they've done. That's fascinating. He says Americans mm. want to knock you down if you've been arrogant, but they also like an underdog and want to build you back up again. Very interesting. Well, I think Americans love a comeback story. Yes. I think that is a specifically American trait. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and he had to tap into that public sentiment, let's say. For sure. <laughs> um, for the new solo record, he gathered some very famous friends together. People love working with David Crosby. Um, the project took seven years to complete, hmm. but it included people like James Taylor, Jackson Brown, and Bonnie Raitt. I have been trying to make this record for probably seven, eight years at least. And back then, I couldn't, you know, get shoes on both my feet at the same time. I was too completely out of it. And I certainly couldn't finish a record. When I got straight and, and sat down to, to look at it again, it came easily. So, you know, I just went with the flow of it. And it, it was this triumphant kind of experience because, obviously, you know, it was very satisfying to be able to do something that I hadn't been able to do before. And uh, also, well, you can tell, you know, from the, from the notes that it, it's like a who's who of who can sing and who can play guitar and stuff. And th- all of my friends, you know, kind of said... Oh, wow, he didn't die. <laughs> you know, let's, you know, come on. And they uh, they all jumped in and we all, you know, really, I had a tremendous amount of help, man, tremendous amount of support. It was incredibly, incredibly satisfying. Wow, it's always good to hear when people get their lives together. But it's also interesting to note that a lot of this music was put together when he wasn't in great shape. Isn't that right? That's true. Yeah. But interestingly, Neil Young told Crosby that if he could get off drugs, he'd record again as CSNY. It took many years, but Neil followed through, and the result was the album American Dream, an album that mm, the band members don't look upon too fondly and that Rolling Stone called a snooze fest. (laughs) (laughs) I asked about the starting point for the new songs. I'm wondering what the, what the real sort of jumping off point, you describe in the book uh, the writing of Compass, for example, uh, which went on American Dream. Big but while, turning what's point. What's the sort of the kickoff point for you to write the songs that went on this record? Was there one set of circumstances under which you started to write those songs? Mm, the songs on this record come from before and after the, ba- the bad times. Right. Uh, most of them from after. Mm-hmm. A, a lot of them written in prison. 
uh, very few of them about prison because it's very difficult to write about that experience or recovering from drugs. You know, you don't want to write, oh, loady me, po me, I'm suffering down here because people will just laugh at you. Yeah, they and don't know. you also can't just, you know, write, everything's going to be nice if you just say no, you know, because that's not true. But some of it, Compass, yeah, Compass was a turning point because it, that's the one that was on the CSNY album. Mm -hmm. it, because it, it was the first really good set of lyrics, first really good song that I was able to come up with after, you got to understand, it was at least three years, and I'm being kind to myself, it might have been longer, that I did not write anything at the end of the period of being a junkie. Mm -hmm. You know, just like nothing. So you can take the drugs enhanced creativity theory and <laughs> out the window. Whoa. Wow, some of those songs were written in prison. You know, I, I know it's yeah. not a great album, but I do like the title track, American Dream, and that kind of that <laughs> that snarling Neil Young vocal. It was really like keyboard driven. There was not much um, of a rock vibe to it. It was almost like a pop song. But Neil Young's vocal made that really kind of um, topical and fiery. Yeah, and when you've got a guitar player of Stephen Stills' caliber, just hold the synths. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, that's true. For me. Yeah. He talked about working with Jackson Brown and Joni Mitchell early in their careers. You had a lot to do with uh, helping Jackson Brown get his career started, didn't you? Well, yeah. He and, and Joni Mitchell are probably the only two artists that came along that I ever thought were so stupendous that I had to do something. You know, I had to like set my music aside for a minute and try to help them. I produced Joni's first album for that reason and I did all the harmonies on his first record for that reason because they were just so good, man. You know, he's just so good and he's such a nice guy. Uh, I have always loved his music. It, it, he's an incredible writer, an incredible singer, and, uh, and one of my very best friends, I might add. You know, so it comes naturally to do that with him. Did you know that about 30 feet from the bottom of this hotel, there's a, what used to be a club called the Riverboat, where Joni used to wash dishes? This is true. <laughs> it's true. I know, because I later washed dishes in there, yeah. too. <laughs> Did you know that I played the Purple Onion, which wasn't far from this hotel, either? Exactly, right on Yorkville Avenue. Yeah. Uh -huh. what, what format was that in? That was in, that was in cheap little acoustic guitar and me, you know. Huh. Was that your first time playing in Canada? Yeah. Yeah, I played there, I played in Hamilton, played in some other, other tasty little spots. Yeah, they're all still there. <laughs> <laughs> Great memories about the folk music days of the Yorkville scene at the end there, Christopher. Great stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, we literally were overlooking the Riverboat Cafe, where I had indeed worked as a dishwasher. <laughs> so had Joni Mitchell. Yay! <laughs> yep. But you know what? He has such enthusiasm, too. I just love uh, the things that he says about artists. I love that he said, you know, their, their work was so amazing, I had to put aside my own to spend time with them. Mm. I asked him if he thought we'd see a time of experimentation again in popular music. Uh, look at Sting. Mm -hmm. Could hardly call that format. Yeah. You know? There's a man who is crowding the barriers. I mean, this, there's a wonderful tune on that record in seven. That's right. There's, there's uh, 
there's They Dance Alone, which is one of the most beautiful songs I've ever heard in my life, ever, you know. There's just song after song of brilliance there. There's, you know, people like Tracy Chapman come along. It's, that's great writing. She's a great writer, you know, and she's such an understated person. She says, hi, how are you? That's it. You know, doesn't feel a need to, like, spew out any hip stuff about who she had dinner with at Spago last night or anything. And she just gets up on the stage and stirs your brain with a spoon. She's powerful because she's talking about stuff that matters to her, you know. Powerful. I just did a gig with her, man. I was just in, in awestruck. I couldn't believe how good this girl was. That's great that he loves other people's music so much. Well, after a recent clash, Tom, Graham Nash said, quote, David has ripped the heart out of CSNY, unquote. Crosby talked earlier, of course, about the part Turmoil has played in these bands. When you went to make the record uh, American Dream with uh, Stills, Nash, and Young, in, in, in the book, there's, there's some funny descriptions that say that if you guys had a great uh, fight during the sound check, they knew it would be a wonderful show. Does it still take a lot of strife to, to create? No, we're more careful about the strife these days. <laughs> um, uh, it can get out of hand too easy, you know. Uh, no, I think that that was that was more just that we were able to turn turn make a fortunate turn, you know, from the adrenaline and take that energy and turn it around, and turn it into you know performance power. Uh, I I wouldn't recommend it as a way to do it. I would much rather work the way Nash and I work. You know, he's my, aside from my wife, my best friend in the world. And, and when we go on stage, it's always exciting. But we're, you know, like, we're in a telepathic link-up. I can start the wrong verse. He'll start it with me. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, uh, we're always laughing with each other and having a... It's so loose, and yet it's so locked, you know? Friendship and cooperation are... are the best basis for music, love, best, absolute best. Not not turbulence and 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 uh, self destructiveness and all this stuff that we you know we all did that because we wanted to be weather beaten, blues ridden, tough old guys you know because we were all kids and we felt like we were like little pink things you know we all wanted to be like old guys you know. So we beat ourselves up, you know, but it was a mistake. Okay, so he says strife can get out of hand too easily. And this is interesting because your interview is from essentially 31 years ago. And Mm -hmm. you mentioned the recent Graham Nash quote that says David has ripped the heart out of CSNY. So this this is another recent quote by David. None of those guys like me, and frankly, I don't see any forward motion there. I can't wait around for Neil to change his mind, and he's the one. You have to understand, there's 20,000 people in the stadium to see Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, and Neil Young puts 10,000 of them in there. So he's in charge. I'm not. When he (laughs) wants to do it, he'll call us. If I'm not busy, I'll do it. Now, in an interview with Paul Schaefer last year, Graham Nash said he had not spoken to David in more than two years after talking to him almost every single day for 45 years. Now, mm-hmm. I tweeted David Crosby directly yesterday, so I did this. 
yesterday to ask him if his relationship with Nash can ever be healed. Now, David often answers people on Twitter, but he did not get back to me in this case. I was hoping he would. I was, I expected him to say something along the lines of, ask him, but he didn't respond to it at all. Uh, and I was a little bit disappointed because uh, David Crosby is really active daily, almost hourly on Twitter. Hmm. So let's go back to uh, David Crosby. Around that time when you were talking to him, someone tried to pull off like a bird's reunion and it didn't include any of the main players. No, it was the wrong bird. <laughs> it was the bird's drummer, Michael Clark. And people are going to go, who? Well, he was apparently about to go out as the birds. So Crosby took action. I called up Roger. I called up Christopher. You know, both of whom I'm very close friends with. And I said, hey guys, this isn't right, you know. And they said, you're right, it's not. So we got together and played. Now, that doesn't automatically give us the name, but it does say, hey, look, here's the real thing. And for sure, man, no band that doesn't have Roger McGuinn in it is going to be the Birds, ever. That's the truth, you know. And, and when he and I and Christopher, who's like just had three hit singles with his band, you know, he's very was, yeah. strong, you know, he's very confident. We got up there, man, and started playing. It was just magical. We cut into Chimes of Freedom, man, and I had hair standing up on my arms. I thought, wow. You know, I had forgotten how strong Roger McGuinn is. What a powerhouse he is. And uh, I had forgotten, you know, how good Chris is. See, Chris is like another integral part of it. There's, there's several elements of this thing. Chris didn't know any bass licks. He's a mandolin player. Right, yeah. He had no idea about the dweep, boom, you know, kind of, you know, regular bass licks. Didn't know how to do that. So he plays a running melody line on the bottom. It's not normal. Me, second, I sing weird harmony. Roger has a song sense a way of approaching a song, a rhythm that he adds to a song, where he very frequently will take a brilliant writer's song and do it better than them. This is a fact. Dylan knows it. Mm -hmm. I've heard Dylan say it. And he's got that 12-string style, which God knows everybody in the world has tried to copy one time or another, and nobody can do it. It was just magical. So I would not be at all surprised if we did it some more. Oh, this is getting deep into the geekdom of details that you and I like. <laughs> And speaking of geekdom, then we talked about songwriting. Okay, now what can I tell you about songwriting and guitar playing? Okay, songwriting happens every which way. Every way that it could happen, it does for me. Sometimes the words first, sometimes the music first, sometimes both of them in one burst, sometimes the entire song is out in 20 minutes, sometimes I work on a piece of it, and seven years later I find the rest. Uh, Joni Mitchell taught me uh, when we were paramours um, to, uh, to write stuff down in a book, which I never did before. She said, David, you're really stupid. And I said, excuse me? She said, you don't write anything down. I said, oh, yeah. So I write everything down. That's one thing. That's funny. Now, you've told me that story before, Christopher, where Joni Mitchell told... David Crosby, you've got to write your ideas down because Crosby felt like if he couldn't keep it around bouncing around in his head that it wasn't worth remembering and Joni's going, no, no, no. Write it all down because it's worth keeping. <laughs> well, that echoes what Neil Young said in the interview that I did too. Yeah, excellent. Which is if you, if you don't use it, you lose it, really. 
Okay, so now, Christopher, we're getting into the... This is so deep into... <laughs> this next segment is so I thought deep. you wanted to leave this part out. I'm going to compromise on you for this next clip because this runs so <laughs> deep, and it's almost more visual. Yeah. But you hear David Crosby kind of working on different tunings and different fingerings on his guitar that honest to god christopher if we play this whole thing we will not have one single <laughs> listener left other than you to this episode and a whole but, bunch of guitar players that's right so so well, just have a well, listen to this come on we'll post the whole thing on facebook but he, he talks about how he uses open tunings which you know gives him songs and i, I love that moment the other thing for me about writing is that i'm not a great guitar player I fool people, <laughs> you know, they think, yeah, you played some weird stuff. I retuned the guitar. All of a sudden, with two fingers, you can be doing... Okay, that's enough. <laughs> anyway, it really is very interesting. So have a look at the posting of that particular video as David Crosby plays it. Because it is fascinating that he basically doesn't believe he's a very good guitar player and how he can play these chords with just one finger or two fingers. And then he gives you examples of all that. And they're all fascinating chords. You did recognize that he was playing the chords for Guinevere. Oh no! And then he played the then he played the guitar part that opens up um, "Deja Vu." Oh, okay. So it really, is like a medley of some of their best known songs, and that went under my head. Well, he was. I think what he was saying was, you know, I tuned my guitar in a way that was foreign from my hands, and then just in messing around, I found these particular you know, formations, and they gave me songs, in this case, Guinevere, in this case, Deja Vu, and so on. It, yeah, it's a very specific thing, point he was making, but I can see how it's a little <laughs> obscure. <laughs> yes. Great stuff from David Crosby in conversation with our very own Christopher Ward. That does it for another episode of Famous Lost Words. Special thanks to our friends at Much Music, also to Brian Master, who interviewed Stevie Nicks and Mick Fleetwood. In the coming weeks, we have some amazing interviews with George Michael, Randy Bachman, Simon and Garfunkel, and John and Yoko. We'll also play some recent clips from Ed Sheeran and a very early interview with Rihanna. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Famous Lost Words, and on Twitter at Famous Lost Pod. Famous Lost Words is produced by Adam Karsh and myself, executive producer Rob Farina. Don't forget to get caught up with past episodes on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.